Namaste to all of you. Let us speak today about the Tibetan yoga when being uh, passionate of yoga, when being fond of yoga, one is trying to use any kind of technology that can help, that can supplement, that can complement some of the things that you are doing. And sooner or later, people who study yoga, generally yoga being a phenomenon which has appeared in the Sanskrit environment, therefore in India, in the Indo-European culture, <clears throat> that's where the name is coming from and the concept is coming from. Uh, as I was saying, whoever studies yoga, sooner or later gets to hear about the sister of the normal yoga, of the classical yoga, of the yoga from India, which is the yoga from Tibet. The Tibetan culture has absorbed Buddhism as a religion from India, from southern parts of Asia, and it has absorbed as well yoga. I would like to make a very clear understanding from the very beginning. Tibetan yoga exists in the framework of Tibetan culture, of Tibetan spirituality, and therefore it is very much related to Tibetan Buddhism, but it is not the same thing with Tibetan Buddhism. Not all the Tibetan yogis were monks in Tibetan monasteries. Not all the Tibetan monks from the monasteries are making Tibetan or practicing Tibetan yoga. Actually, the area of intersection between those two is quite small. It's true. In the history of Tibet, there have existed a few great Tibetan Buddhist masters who also have been great Tibetan yogis. So there is an intersection zone. Therefore, there is not a conflict zone, like the yogis are not Buddhists and the Buddhists are not yogis. There is not conflict between those, but one has to understand very clearly that yoga is not a religion, while Buddhism is a religion in its Tibetan form, Tibetan Buddhism, the Vajrayana Buddhism in its most specific form, and a, a bit of the Mahayana Buddhism as well included there. And that's why here we are walking on the edge of two things. In Agama, we as yogis, we are interested in Tibetan yoga. We are not interested specifically into Tibetan Buddhism. We love all the authentic religions of this planet, and we admit that the religions are a form of spirituality, a path of spirituality, and that all the authentic religions have generated saints and enlightened beings, but they were not part of yoga. Yoga is yoga, and religions are religion. Yoga relates very well with Buddhism. Yoga relates very well with Hinduism. Yoga relates well, but in a more distant way, 
with Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, because these religions are created on other meridians in other geographical areas on the background of a totally different culture and ethnic uh, structure. And because of this, um, yoga, to connect yoga with Christianity or to connect yoga with Islam and Sufism or with Judaism and Kabbalah, it takes a bigger stretch. But with Hinduism and Buddhism, they are both from the area of India and yoga has appeared in the same cradle, in the same geographical area. And that's why there is no problem in these areas. And that's why there is a connection. In Tibet, this connection persisted. The Tibetans were a sort of mixture of Mongols, Chinese, Central Asian people, a little bit of Nepalese and Indian blood. They were somewhere as a buffer between the <coughs> China part and the India <coughs> part, the culture of India. And uh, because of this, the Tibetan culture has absorbed religious things from India, from China, and all that. But also, they have absorbed yoga. This is not a speculation. Even uh, proeminent Buddhist teachers, Tibetan Buddhist teachers like the Dalai Lama and others, the present-day Dalai Lama, the 14th Dalai Lama, they acknowledge freely that there is no shame in the Tibetan culture to say that from the standpoint of Buddhism and from the standpoint of yoga, India is the guru and Tibet is the disciple. Because although the Tibetans have creatively contributed to the history of yoga and they brought into yoga some amazing stuff, nevertheless that all that stuff is grafted on the original tree of yoga. The original tree of yoga is still from India. And the Tibetans brought in a few wonderful practices and uh, some wonderful knowledge and a few new branches, but those branches, they are grafted on the original tree. It's not another tree. It's not a new tree. It's still the old tree of yoga. So the tree of yoga, which was developed in India, has been imported in Tibet. That was also because the Tibetans, being a nation which a predominance with a spiritual predominance of Manipura chakra and Ajna chakra, they have been very pragmatic and they have understood pretty quickly in the very first centuries of yoga already. They have understood the fact that yoga is extremely practical pragmatical, it is a practical system, and they were very interested in going beyond simple philosophy, ethics, general religious teachings, and doing some practice which modifies 
the consciousness, which heightens the consciousness. One of the very famous Tibetan schools of Buddhism, branches of Buddhism, which was <clears throat> perhaps the one which was the most heavily steeped into yoga, in involved into yoga, because their Buddhism was a Buddhism with a lot of practical yoga things, they simply said, you want ethics and philosophy, go to those Buddhist people, another school, other lineages from Tibet, if you want enlightenment, come to us. Like those people talk about enlightenment, we actually do enlightenment. We obtain it concretely. That was because they have added a lot of this yoga knowledge. So the Tibetans have noticed that religion is for the masses. It's generally uh, philosophy, ethics, morality. I'm not saying this to put it down. It's very beautiful. It's very good. But that there is a more intensive path for certain individuals to transform themselves, to go stronger, and that deeper path, that faster path, that more potent path was to mix the religion with yoga. Again, yoga is not a religion, but yoga being an empirical science, a practical methodology, it can be used for accelerating the fulfillment of religious goals. It can be used as an instrument for attaining many of the religious goals. And that's why uh, in Tibet, I think we see the closest relationship. We see that in India, people practicing Vedanta, uh, following the Vedic culture, people following the philosophy of the Upanishads, people following uh, other and other philosophies, Shaiva, Vaishnava, of different kinds, which are religious orientations, have sometimes put it together with yoga. We see so-called saints, I prefer to call them great yogis and enlightened beings, who have been at the same time very much involved into some aspects of Hinduism, therefore of religion, and who at the same time were great yogis. So in India, in general, you, you will not find a contradiction between yogis and Hindu people, religious people, between yogis and Buddhist practitioners, between yogis and Jainistic people, between yogis and people pertaining to different branches of the Hindu religion or other religions from that geographical area. The same thing happens in Tibet. There is no conflict between the yogis and the Buddhists in general, only that the yogis were much fewer in number. The whole Tibet was Buddhist, but not all of them knew yoga. Far, far from that. Tibet is credited that it was the land where up to one-third of the population, some people claim even more than that, were involved into Buddhist monasteries, which is a huge percentage. 
huge percentage. Now, today, in a country of 20 million people in Europe, there are maybe 10 to 20,000 Christian monks. 20,000 Christian monks and nuns out of 20 million would be like one in a thousand. And that's considered very much. It's very much like in France, you don't have such a percentage. In Germany, in other places, you will not have such a percentage. So already one in a thousand, 0.1% is considered huge in modern materialistic, atheistic, Marxistic, neo-Marxistic, European culture. But in Tibet, 30% of the population to be living in monasteries, that was huge. This makes Tibet perhaps the most religious nation on earth, at least in the time of the medieval times, in the 15th century, we can say that perhaps in the 15th century, Tibet was the most religious nation on earth. But the fact that one million Tibetans may have lived in monasteries, Buddhist monasteries, that is, it doesn't mean that a million of them were yogis. There were maybe a thousand yogis, two thousand yogis, in the whole nation, which means the yogis were very, very rare. I want, I'm insisting on this because I want you to understand from the beginning that Tibetan Buddhism and Tibetan yoga are not the same thing, although they have been very friendly with each other. And I think in the Tibetan history, we see the biggest cooperation between Tibetan yogis and Tibetan Buddhists. Tibetan yogis were very Buddhistic and they were very much attuned to the Buddhist traditions of the lay people, of the normal people, of the householders. And Tibetan householders knew that some of the Tibetan monks and nuns, they were also yogis and they were very, very powerful and efficient. And that was a splendid method. But they were not one and the same thing. I remember when having spoken with Tibetan teachers and yogis in Tibet, while visiting them in Tibet, that they showed me very clearly that the Tibetan yogis did not even live inside the monasteries. Like the monks and nuns lived in monasteries, and the yogis were living usually up above the monasteries. The Tibetan monasteries are usually built with their back onto a hill, onto a mountain, to protect them from the very strong winds and storms which exist in Tibet. Well, if the monastery was here, then up on the hill behind the monastery, there were a few huts, 10 huts, 20 huts, bungalows, whatever you want to call them, which were the residences of the yogis. So the yogis could visit the monastery, but they were not sleeping in the monastery, they were not eating in the monastery, they were not living in the monastery. One of the reasons, but it's not the only one, is that the yogis did not take the same vows as the monks. The monks and nuns were 
conditioned by their religious affiliation to take some vows. Like, for example, the Buddhist monks take vows of celibacy. Some yogis, both male and female, were practicing sexual tantric teachings. And because of this, they were not celibate. They were practicing brahmacharya, but they were practicing brahmacharya in the other understanding of brahmacharya, which all those who have done level one in Agama know from the lecture on brahmacharya. And therefore, because these yogis were not taking the vow to be celibate, then they could not be members of the brotherhood or sisterhood in the monastery, because the brotherhood or the sisterhood in the monastery, they were taken, they had taken the vow to be celibate. And thus, I'm telling you again, these two cultures of yogis and monks in Buddhism in Tibet, they are not the same. They overlap a little bit, because they were people who were both, who are in both categories. But they, were, they are not one and the same thing. So, exactly as there is Hinduism, Hindu religion, Hindu beliefs and Hindu practices, with prayer, with rituals, with a lot of things, in India, and then there are the yogis, who stand on their head and do the lotus posture, and they do pranayamas, and the Hindu people who pray to Brahma, they don't stand on their head, they don't do pranayamas, and they might not even be able to perform the lotus posture. So the two groups, again, are not the same, and they don't have the same lifestyle. Exactly in the same way, in Tibet, the yogis were a very small caste of people, a, small, a very small category of people, and the initiation in yoga was given with great difficulty. The gurus were very tough and very grumpy and very demanding people. And accession to yoga was not at all easy. A Western Buddhist woman called Vicky Mackenzie, who wrote a wonderful book about her own practice as Tibetan Buddhist, and uh, aspirant Tibetan yogini, and who did some retreats of years alone in a hut in India, in the north of India. That's why she called her book Cave in the Snow, because her hut was a cave in the snow, basically. Nevertheless, she did not have access to the full initiations in yoga, to the main initiations in yoga, and when she asked, like she was a very pushy foreigner, very determined, she had money, she had, you know, this practical intelligence and so on. She really wanted the thing and she pushed her way and she, she got to speak with the teachers, with the gurus. Very few left, one, two, extremely rare and secretive gurus of female yoga lineages in Tibet. And they simply told her, we will not initiate you in our yoga. And she said, but why? I'm really devoted, I'm this, I'm that. And they told her, there are some things in the female Tibetan yoga which have to be developed until you are 17, 18 or 19 maximum years of age. 
If you did not develop those things until that age, if you start later, you will destroy your body, your kidneys, your ovaries, and other internal organs, they will collapse, they will explode. You cannot. So you have to start this as a teenager, and then you can do it. And since Vicky McKenzie was 35 years old or 40, they simply told us, we respect your aspiration, but our method is an extremely tough method, almost violent, and you cannot learn it under the danger of destroying your physical body while trying to do those practices. So that's why I'm saying we are talking here about an environment which is very manipuristic, very strict, very secretive. And during the workshop on Tibetan yoga, I play videos, I show diagrams, I give examples of different such practices where they were. And we in yoga, we know exactly the limit of what can be done by a totally healthy, strong, balanced body and what cannot be done by one who has crossed a certain line in age or in uh, physical debility, in physical weakness. Thus, when we speak about Tibetan yoga, we are talking about um, very esoteric path. The Buddhism is the exoteric path, and the yoga is the esoteric path. And it's very difficult to learn. I remember that I once met Several times I met with people, foreigners, Westerners, who have been involved with the Tibetan Buddhism because it's become very popular in Western Europe and especially in North America. And many people have this uh, dream that somehow they are not Christians anymore, they are not this, they are not that. They are Buddhists. Uh, they, their Pope is the Dalai Lama, and they are Buddhists, and so on. And uh, many of these people, being pragmatic in the Western way, you know, like business people, no pragmatical thing, what works, what doesn't work, what gives strong results, what gives weak results, what gives quick results, what gives slow results, they have understood eventually that Tibetan yoga was the real diamond into that, that Tibetan Buddhism is for millions of people, and that Tibetan yoga is for a very limited number of people. They have also noticed pretty soon that Tibetan yoga is extremely rare, and even in these environments of Tibetan lamas, gurus, circles, it's very difficult to actually learn the practices, the exercises, the methods, because nobody would teach you. Part of it is because many of the teachers are dead and a lot of lineages were lost due to the migration of Tibetan yoga and Tibetan Buddhism out of Tibet to India and to the Western countries due to the well-known issues with China. And also because in Kali Yuga, spirituality becomes very sparse, very rarefied, and many lineages simply disappeared without a worthy continuator to those lineages. And therefore the methods simply disappeared, died, they withered, they vanished. And also 
because the condition of accession to this Tibetan yoga have been tightened a lot. In the yoga of the disciple, which is the first of the 10 or 11 lineages of Tibetan yoga, methodologies, approaches, which I'm describing in the workshop, in the yoga of the disciple, as it is called, they are talking for to start, to be able to be initiated in anything else in yoga, the yoga of the five elements or the six yogas of Naropa or other such things, first you have to start with 100,000 invocations of Vajrasattva, 100,000 prostrations, and I forgot whatever other things. I know them, I teach them in the workshop, but the numbers are not directly relevant. 100,000 prostrations, if you do 1,000 prostrations per day, you are an athletic champion. An athletic champion. I'm asking people in the workshop to do 100 prostrations, and the next day they walk like they have been hit by a log in the forest. You know, they get such a fever in the muscles. You know, like it's really difficult to do even 100 prostrations. If you do 100 per day takes you a thousand days to do a hundred thousand. thousand days is three years in which you are on the threshold. You haven't entered yet. You are still knocking at the door and you have to do the practical, you know, the preliminaries. And the hundred thousand invocation of Vajrasattva, they are really difficult and long and it's long mantras which have to be repeated ad infinitum. And if you do a thousand of those per day. The fastest people manage somehow by doing eight, ten hours of yoga per day. They manage to do a thousand mantras and a thousand prostrations per day. Takes them again more than eight hours per day. And that will take them more than a hundred days. Like four months to do the preliminaries. Basically, most of the Westerners, they don't have the willpower, the self-discipline, the patience, the determination, the aspiration to do that kind of thing. And that's why Tibetan yoga was done by Manipuristic Tibetans 200 years ago who were ready to go to this level of practice, to this level of enormous self-discipline and willpower. And today the gurus did not slacken the conditions because they cannot, because otherwise it will not work. And because of this, Tibetan yoga has become very rare. I met Westerners involved in Tibetan Buddhism who when they heard that I potentially would do a workshop where I will teach about Tumo and the yoga of the dreams and similar practices, they told me sincerely, they said, I have been involved in Tibetan Buddhism 17 years and in 17 years I heard only two times in 17 years, that somebody would teach some of these yogas, parts of it, not all of them. And I didn't manage to catch them. I didn't manage to get there in time and in good conditions to get that teaching. No? Like that's about how often you find yoga, even in the Tibetan Buddhist environments. Because of this, Teaching Tibetan yoga is really a diamond, it's really a pearl, it's really something amazing which we do in Agama, and it is due to several factors. One, we love yoga, 
and we want yoga to be preserved for posterity, to be transmitted to the next generations, and because of that, we uh, want to preserve the Tibetan yoga, which is the cousin, the younger cousin of Indian yoga, and which has some very interesting, powerful things to offer. Two, Tibetan yoga has preserved some information, which even in Indian yoga has been lost due to the persecution of Hinduism between the 12th century and the 18th, 19th century. A lot of aspects of yoga have been hidden in India and then lost in the jungles and in the Himalayas of India. And paradoxically, some of them, because they were exported to Tibet in the 10th century, 11th century, 12th century, they were preserved by the Tibetan yogis. And 10 centuries later, Tibet can return the favor to India and give it back some things which are lost. Like, for example, what we do with the art of dying. The art of dying, which is a specific yogic information from India, nevertheless has been preserved in Tibet. There is not one single book, tradition or lineage in India which teaches exactly the methods for death. The, although they speak about Icha, Mrityu, the death at will, and all sorts of other concepts, they speak about it only in a Puranic and Upanishadic way, like legends, myths, stories. But when it says, how many Anuloma, Viloma, Pranayamas do you have to do? And then afterwards, how many Udhyana Bandhas? And then how many mantras and what mantras and so on? They are not there. They don't have it anymore. There do not exist such teachers and traditions. The Tibetans do have them, did have them. A hundred years ago, just to mention, uh, to give a landmark in time. And thus, these things here in Agama, we wanted them very much. We got them. We have them. Another point is that Agama Yoga is one of the best forms of yoga in the world because it is technical, scientific, engineering. No bullshit, no nonsense, no stupidities. It's technically and engineeringly is perhaps the most accurate form of yoga in the world today, nowadays. And because of this, Tibetan yoga can be understood practiced, cleaned of its ethnic, religious, and other collateral paraphernalia very easily, because once you understand 90% of yoga, then Tibetan yoga is crystal clear, and it can be reintegrated, reabsorbed, reimported in yoga. The fact that the Tibetans were Buddhists and that most of the Indians practicing yoga, they were Hindu, it makes absolutely no obstacle in this respect. It's a, it's a duality, it's a false conflict, it's a no conflict, which can be resolved very, very easily, because the basic concepts are exactly the same, exactly the same. The same thing is valid about the tantric aspects of yoga, which the laws of polarity about the male and the female, which are 
fundamentally the same and therefore they are to be integrated in the same, in absolutely the same way. So for these reasons and a few others, which some of them can be personal, like some of the teachers here in Agama, they loved Tibet, the Tibetan spiritual culture. They loved the Tibetan spirit, which is very peculiar. They loved the Tibetan style. They loved the Tibetan yoga. And again, all these reasons, one on top of each other, and others which, again, I will outline them when I do the workshop, when I'll have the time to go into the details, make that Agama is preserving most of the Tibetan yoga. And basically, we simply grafted on the tree of yoga. India gives us 80-90% of the yoga that we practice. And then from Tibet, we get another 10-15% of what we have in our yoga. And then there is always another 3%-5% which may come from Sufism, mystical Christianity or other mystical doctrines on the face of this earth which uh, give us in yoga also some beautiful things, some things which may have not been told clearly neither in Indian yoga nor in Tibetan yoga we might find them elsewhere like in the hermetic tradition of the eastern Mediterranean or others and then why not take it if it's there and if it's just the one of the missing pieces of the puzzle in the science of yoga. So in this way most of you know that Agama is based on Indian and Kashmirian yoga but it is very open when the traditions are convergent and when they fit with each other we are very open to get the missing pieces of it from other traditions and to complete the puzzle to complete to round up the tree of yoga and Tibetan yoga has exactly this function. Tibetan yoga will change your life forever because it has a peculiar style. And some people take a bit of it, a flavor of it. And some people, especially those that love this Manipura Ajna style of the Tibetans, they get a lot, they feel enriched a lot. And they feel like, oh my God, now yoga for me is very, very different. This is like a new angle to it. Yes, Tibetan yoga can do that because it has a special approach. Because of this Manipura Ajna, it is first of all a more wild approach, a more masculine approach, a more, um, how should I say, determined approach. I'm not saying that the yogis from India were not determined because some of them were absolutely astonishing. But I am saying that um, I think the level of tapasya, the level of asceticism which was practiced in Tibetan yoga is at the top, is at the same level with the top of the Indian yoga. And perhaps only in Christianity, in the fathers of the desert from the early centuries of Christianity, those are the only places on earth, 
where you find people who have managed to do this kind of tapas. Like their tapas, their level of practice in the Fathers of the Desert, in Tibetan yoga, and in some Himalayan Indian yoga, it's reaching superhuman levels. Like often when people hear stories of Tibetan yoga and some of the other two, which I mentioned, they shake their heads and they wonder if those are legends, if those are metaphors, or if such people actually lived in flesh and blood on the face of this earth, and if it is possible for somebody to live their lives like this. It is, and the people who love Tibetan yoga, they love precisely this commitment, this style, this drive, this uh, intensity of the practice. And uh, Tibetan yoga is very different in many ways from the Indian yoga, although it has common points. It's based on purely Buddhist concepts, and that's why very strong you find in it the yoga of voidness, how to reach the state of void, which is a spiritual state of Sahasrara, uh, the path of the natural state, like what is called Sahaja Samadhi in India, is the path of Dzogchen in Tibet. The deity yoga from Vajrayana, which is corresponding to the Mahavidya yoga and to other worship of deities from India. The yoga of the five elements, which is the basis of all the spiritual alchemy of the Orient. That's the essence of all the metaphysics. The six yogas of Naropa, which are the direct derivative from Kundalini Yoga and Raja Yoga and a bit of Hatha Yoga from India. And they are the most powerful, effective forms of practical yoga. Unusual things like extreme things like Chod, the yoga of sacrificing your ego and your fear. Then, very specific, the yoga of Shambhala, or while Shambhala is a Sanskrit name which comes from India, and it shows that the Indian yogis knew of the existence of Shambhala. Nevertheless, geographically, Tibet was the closest to Shambhala, and therefore the Tibetans were connected directly and physically even with Shambhala, and they developed forms of yoga related with that. And uh, when you look at the characteristics of the Tibetan yoga, you see that the Tibetan yoga is, the purpose is to reach the Buddha nature, the Nirvana, the Nirvikalpa Samadhi, and therefore there are very few applications of Tibetan yoga for profane goals. Like most of the Hatha yoga from India, today it has become a multi-billion dollar industry of fitness and apparel like uh, auxiliary, Lulu, lemon trousers, and stuff like this. No? And therefore, um, if you would show it to Ramakrishna, Ramakrishna would probably get a heart attack or an apoplectic attack, seeing what has become of his beloved yoga from his younger days. Now, with Tibetan yoga, such perversions are much fewer. Because the purpose of it, the lineage of it, the way of doing it is clear. There are the Indian influences. 
there are the shamanic influences in India, the Brahmanic culture of India, the Vedic Brahminic culture has met with the Dravidian cultures from south of India and they generated the shamanic Hindu mysticism which is called Tantra, Hindu Tantrism, all these goddesses and deity yoga. The same thing has happened in Tibet but not with the Dravidian shamanism but with the Bunpa, with the Bun shamanism of Tibet, a sort of a Mongolian shamanic and Siberian shamanic tradition, and that one mixed with the pure Buddhism, it has generated the Tantric Buddhism, Vajrayana, which is specific to Tibet. There are four lineages of Tibetan Buddhism, and the yoga practiced in each one of them is different, like we were mentioning the six yogas of Naropa just earlier. Those are practiced only in the Red Hat Lamas in the Kagyu school of Tibetan Buddhism. It's not specific to the Sakya or others. There is the story about the gradual path and the sudden path, like in Kashmiri Shaivism, that uh, Tibetan Buddhism admits that there exists some cheating methods which create sudden path processes and which are very problematic for those who practice it. By the way, I'll explain that. But there is also the Lamrim, the, the gradual path of it. There is the Chinese influence which manifests very much in these classifications. You know, like there are ten, exactly as Buddha says, there are four noble truths. There are nine things to be done after. Or like the Chinese Tao says, there are ten signs of impending orgasm for women. There are, you know, like everything is divided in a number of things which seem to be like you can memorize them and, and give them for an exam. In the same way, in Tibetan yoga, there are the 10 causes of regret and the 18 ridiculous things to not be done and other such things. There is a Chinese-style classification. Again, the void and emptiness is always there because Buddha has defined the spirituality as shunya, as shunyata, as the void. And the Tibetan Buddhists, they didn't want to create a new world religion. They grafted their Tibetan Buddhism and Tibetan yoga on the tree of Buddhism. And a lot of ritualism, exactly as in India, much of the religion has been preserved under the form of the Vedic ritual and the Vedic society. In Tibet, there is also a lot of ritualism, which is a sort of a low-grade level of practice where people who don't know yoga and whose bodies, nadis, chakras are not prepared for yoga, are not honed by yoga, they can still be involved in some spiritual and devotional practices and then that is done under the form of rituals, sometimes endless rituals. Again, I consider that there are about 10 or 11 branches in Tibetan yoga, approaches to Tibetan yoga, and that's what our workshop in Tibetan yoga is all about. Of course, it is not possible to teach practices which are forbidden to women over 19, over the age of 19 or something like this. I can mention them, I can show in what they consist, but of course we in yoga understand the limits of the human body 
and other limitations that humans can have. And therefore, although Agama is an encyclopedic school and we have the knowledge, we can give the knowledge. Agama is probably best in the world at giving the knowledge about yoga. You will not come to Agama and study yoga for a few years and go from here without a full, crystal clear, wonderful knowledge of yoga, which will be with you for the rest of your life, like you can understand everything through that. In the same way, our Tibetan yoga workshop, in some aspects, we will give you the practices, will show you the practices. A workshop is just a workshop. In 36 hours of teaching, you can give only open the doors and show, but of course, you cannot practice 100,000 hours of prostrations and uh, mantras and other such things that is for everyone to do in their individual practice. The door will be open. Again, I want to say you cannot learn all the Tibetan yoga in 36 hours. Definitely there will be some practices which I'll show them to you on video or some of them in direct approach, but still it will not be possible for some people to approach those practices. But on the other hand, everything which would be taught, like the the yoga of the state of death, the yoga of transference, the pova, the six yogas of naropa, and other such diamonds of yoga, they will be shown, they will be demonstrated, And people will be able to do it. And then, of course, if people will choose to do 100,000 hours of practice on those things, they will also obtain the results of it. Uh, Outside the Tibetan environment, Agama Yoga's workshop of Tibetan yoga is one of the very, very few places in this world where you can learn Tibetan yoga authentically, practically, and uh, correctly, you know, in like in the in the way which works, understanding it, like knowing what it is and not just talking all sorts of funny uh, stereotypical language which is happening sometimes in these environments. Uh, even in the Tibetan environments, today Tibetan yoga is extremely rare because of the precautions and because of the very stiff conditions which are imposed on teaching it or showing it. And uh, one of the biggest problems is that these people, they don't have the metaphysical understanding of the chakras, planes of the universe, law of correspondence, law of resonance, and other such basic pillars of understanding of the spiritual practices. And because of this, many of the Tibetan practices are just garbed in a Buddhist language. And they sound very mystical and very weird and difficult to understand. And at least mysterious, if not completely crazy. And because of this, um, I think that if you want to learn Tibetan yoga... Come and take this workshop with Agama and see for yourself. Again, we cannot give you 100,000 hours of practice in 36 hours of teaching. 
but we can make it crystal clear for you and the practices which are accessible we can show them demonstrate them do them repeatedly and then the people who just want to sit and practice they have the green light to sit and practice because we give them as an initiation with the empowerment with the blessing with the complete things which come to this so you want to know more tibetan yoga for me has always been extremely thrilling extremely stimulating that that is the reason why i chose to learn it from different teachers i had the chance the karmic chance to be offered the knowledge and the practice i have traveled to tibet to speak with yogis from tibet to consolidate some of this practice to verify if what i had learned in the west was corresponding exactly with how the things were done in tibet and in this way uh, i am sure that here in agama yoga we can offer you the tibetan yoga in a splendid form in an amazing form which will inspire you and which will give you the knowledge and the initiation of those things there is no more to say except uh, you know come and see for yourselves if that is just bragging or if that is the real deal with this i will conclude for today and uh, i will invite you to see the tibetan yoga.